Would you bow your hearts with me and we'll go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, what an amazing truth that we just sang. Thank you that we are washed. That we have been washed, Lord, not with water, but we have been washed with the blood of the Lamb. Nothing else can wash away our sin and our guilt, but the blood of Christ is sufficient. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross and dying the death that we deserve to die so that we may live the life that you give to us. We thank you for that celebration. We thank you for opportunity that your church has to gather together and to remind ourselves again and again of this gospel, this great news, that sinners like us are invited into your presence, where perfect, holy God invites sinners who are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord Jesus, I pray that now as we go to Scripture, as we go to Your Word. I pray, Lord, that You would open our minds, and as Your Spirit does, illumines our hearts to understand these truths, Lord. We see the words on the page, but it is You who has to open our eyes so that we may receive them, accept them, believe them, obey them. I pray that You would do Your work even this afternoon as we talk about baptism, Lord. But Jesus, I pray for the hearts of those who are listening right now or will listen to this later. But Jesus, if there is anyone here who has not been born again, who has not been saved, who has not been washed by the blood of the Lamb, I pray that this would be an opportunity to run to the cross. And then if there's anyone here who has done that, Lord, but has not been obedient to you in the waters of baptism, I pray that you would convict even this afternoon so that we would testify of your glory and testify of your work in our hearts. I pray for myself that you would give me grace to take us through this for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, as I said, last Sunday we began this series talking about ordinances. We focused on the Lord's Supper last time and we participated in it at the end of the service. And this afternoon we're going to talk about baptism, water baptism. Now, we said last time that there are two and only two ordinances that are given to the church by Jesus himself. That is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, if we consider the church as a whole, there is much confusion regarding both of these ordinances. And because there is much confusion about them and much debate and disagreement about them, some churches even decide to forego them completely. As a result of that, many people are lost and confused, even those who sit in the pews year after year. Now, when it comes to baptism, I think we can say that in general, there's two main problems. The first problem in the church regarding baptism is that many believers are unbaptized. Many believers who attend the church year after year and probably even saved are not baptized. Now, if you're truly saved and you've been converted, you've been regenerated, you've been born again, which is saying the same thing, the first step of obedience that New Testament prescribes for you is to go into the waters of baptism. And many people have not done that. Because baptism is not taught, because it is not emphasized, many genuine believers continue to live life without ever entering the waters of baptism. On the other hand, there is a second problem, and that is this. Many who are baptized are unbelievers. Many who are baptized are unbelievers. Believers are not baptized, but many who are in the church and are baptized are unbelievers. Now, some come from a background where they were baptized as infants, and they think that's sufficient. Some come, for example, if you're a part of a Slavic culture and you come from a Slavic church, and uh, many people get baptized because they want to get married in the church, and they won't marry you until you get baptized. And some people are unconverted and they get baptized because they want to get married in the church. Still other things that there is something mystical that will happen in the waters of baptism. So if I go through that ceremony, something will change, something will happen to me. And so they go into the waters of baptism without actually repenting and confessing their sin. Now whatever the reason might be, someone who is unconverted and is baptized is sitting in the church and that person is an unbeliever. And for these these two reasons, it is essential that we teach on baptism. Now, our desire in this church is to baptize every genuine believer. So if you're converted, you should be baptized, and we want to baptize you. If you are unconverted and baptized, we want you to hear the gospel and be saved and finally get baptized. Because the first one wasn't baptism, it was just public bath. We want 
all genuine believers to be baptized. And those who are baptized, we want you to be sure that you are saved. Now, my goal this afternoon is twofold. I want to do two things. First, I want to define what baptism is. We're going to look at scripture and we're going to be all over the place just to see how New Testament defines baptism. And then second, after we're done with that, I want to defend baptism. I want to examine two popular views of baptism that we believe do not fit the definition of the New Testament. We're going to talk about what Roman Catholic Church teaches about baptism and what Pado-Baptist Reform teach about baptism. We'll talk about those two positions and we'll see how those do not fit with Scripture. But just to begin, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 is Jesus' final instruction to the church before His ascension. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, is a passage that is known as the Great Commission. Many of you have it memorized, but let's read it together. Matthew 28, 18, it says this, And Jesus came up to the, and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now if you look at the Great Commission, the main command in the Great Commission is to make disciples. That is the command. Jesus says, I want you, he's looking at 11, and perhaps this might be the place where Jesus appeared to 500 people when Jesus ascended. He's looking at them and he says, your goal, your job is to make disciples. That is the main verb in this sentence here, or in this paragraph here. That is the main goal. Now you're going to make disciples by doing three things, he says here. First of all, you must go. He says, go, therefore, it's a participle. Now, it is your responsibility as a believer to go with the gospel to the lost. If the motto of the Old Testament was come and see, the motto of New Testament is go and tell. You see, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship Yahweh, you would walk for miles and miles and miles and miles until you got to Jerusalem. And then you went into the temple and you brought your sacrifice and you worship Yahweh there. It was this, God says, I want you to build this magnificent temple for me. I want you to be light, I mean, light on the hill so that everyone would be drawn to you. And people would come and see how amazing Yahweh is. Now there's a change in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's not come and see, but it is go and tell. Jesus is sending out his disciples and he says, under the new covenant, there isn't this one place where you worship Yahweh. There isn't this one temple where you go and bring your sacrifices. No, now you are the temple of God. And I want you to go. Now this text assumes that when you do go, and when you do preach the gospel, people will be converted. And that's where you get the second component of the Great Commission. The first component is you go. Second, he says, when people believe, you baptize them. Baptize them. Now this is the second ordinance given by Jesus to the church. The first one Jesus inaugurated at the communion table when he transformed the Passover into communion. Now right before his ascension, Jesus says, I want you to go and baptize those who make a public profession of faith. Those who believe your message, those who accept your words, you are to baptize them. And then finally, he says, you are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, Great Commission does not end with conversion. Great Commission does not end when people pray sinner's prayer and you baptize them. No, he says, you ought to teach those who are converted. That's why you have pastors, that's why you have teachers in the church. And it is the job of a church to come together. And the church ought to train people in the Word of God. Because when you are born again, literally, you're born again, you're an infant. You need to be taught, you need to be trained. And he says, you disciples, this is what you ought to do. You are to go. When people believe, you are to baptize them. When you baptize them, they come into the church, and then you train them. And then you teach them. And then you preach to them. And you instruct them for what purpose? So that then, once they grow, once they mature, they can turn around and do the same. And they can go. And they can proclaim. And people would believe because of their message. And they would be baptized and become coming to the church. That is the Great Commission in a nutshell. Now, our focus today is on the second part here. When you go and when you preach and when you proclaim Christ, people will believe. And He says, you are supposed to baptize them. 
Now let's define baptism. What is baptism? Now the word baptism comes from a Greek word, which means to immerse, to submerge, or to dip. Now the word is used in the New Testament literally. And when it is used literally, we're talking about taking something or taking someone and submerging them underwater. The word is used figuratively as well. And when the the word is used figuratively, it means to identify with another person intimately. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writing to Corinthians and he says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. For all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, they didn't literally take him and dip him into Moses. That's not what he's talking about. But people were so identified with Moses, when Moses led them through the sea, they were identified with his leadership because Moses was God-appointed leader for the people. Now, when we're talking about the ordinance of baptism, when we're talking about baptism in the New Testament, it is also used in both senses. It is used figuratively and it is used literally. When the word baptism used figuratively in the New Testament, it refers to spirit baptism or baptism by the Holy Spirit. When it is used literally, it refers to water baptism. Now let's consider these two briefly. First, spirit baptism is also known, as I just said, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now this is a dry baptism. There is no water involved here. Dry baptism. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of your salvation when Christ takes you and baptizes you by the Holy Spirit. You remember right before His ascension, the passage that we just read in Matthew, Jesus gathered with His disciples and He says to them, Acts chapter 1 verse 5, He says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, the book of Acts is a transitional book. So not everything that happens in the book of Acts is normative and it should happen today. Now disciples were believers prior to Jesus saying these things to them. But no one was baptized with the Holy Spirit because Holy Spirit did not descend until the day of Pentecost. And that's why speaking to the disciples, he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now everyone who is born again after the day of Pentecost is immediately baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work of God. Notice this, you will be, they're passive. It's something that is going to happen to them. This is something that God is going to do. Now, when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, a couple things happen. First, a person who is baptized with the Holy Spirit is united with Christ. Just like Israelites were united with Moses or were placed under the authority or under the leadership of Moses, in the same way when you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, you are united to Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 says, For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed, for you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, he says, if you are in Christ, if you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, you are so identified with Christ, it is as if you are clothed with Christ. You are wrapped up in Christ. Not only that, as a result of baptism of the Holy Spirit, you are placed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now again, notice that this is the work of the Spirit. This does not refer to some separate class of mature believers who eventually, after they got converted, somehow are elevated to this mature, superior class of believers who are baptized. No, notice he's talking to Corinthians. And if you read Corinthians, you know how well that church behaved. And he's writing, he says, For you all were baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are an unbeliever. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You cannot be a believer and not be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, this describes spiritual reality when one is placed into the body of Christ. And if you keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14, he will tell you that as a result of you being placed into the body of Christ, now you have the Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of you. The Spirit of God gives you spiritual gifts with which you are to contribute to the body. Now this baptism is 
done by God Himself, and it happens only once when you are saved. This is not a secondary experience that you should seek or that you should pray for. Nowhere do you find those commands in the New Testament. It is something that God does at the moment of your conversion. This baptism saves. This baptism saves. Now, if I were to ask you a question, does baptism save? What is the correct answer? The correct answer is which one? Right? Which baptism are we talking about? If we're talking about spirit baptism, it definitely saves. If we're talking about water baptism, it definitely does not save. Now, as I told you, we'll be all over the Bible. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 is admittedly a difficult text. And here's what Peter writes. Give you a second to get there. 1 Peter 3, 21. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now notice, first of all, that Peter says that baptism saves. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. But notice he's quick to clarify so that you don't think that he's talking about water baptism. He's saying, wait wait a minute, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. This passage is not about water baptism. This passage is not about you going into the water, going under, coming out, and all of a sudden you're saved. That's not what he's talking about. Water baptism is simply a picture of an inward reality that happens prior to that. Nothing supernatural happens in the waters of baptism. Taking a public bath, as I said, does nothing for your soul. But in this case, he says, this baptism saves This baptism cleanses your soul. Water can cleanse your body, but it cannot cleanse your soul. But notice second, if that's not water baptism, what is he talking about? Notice he clarifies the end of verses. But it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This word appeal is only used here in the New Testament. It is usually translated as appeal, or in some cases, it's translated as a pledge, especially if you read in a Russian Bible. Outside of Scripture, this word was used as a pledge, but we have to consider the context in which Paul Peter is using this word here. Notice this is a reference, as I said, to dry baptism, to a baptism that saves you. And therefore, it is best to read this verse as an appeal rather than a pledge. Listen, when you get saved... You get saved, not because of some pledge that you make to God. You don't come to God and you say, God, I promise that now I will be a better person. I promise clear conscience to you. Is that how you got saved? That's not how you got saved. How did you get saved? You get saved because you come to God and you say, God, I am not clean. God, I am messed up. God, I need your forgiveness. I need you to wash me. I need you to make my conscience clean. That's why this word appeal, it is used many times in the verb form in the New Testament. It's always talking about asking for something. And in this case, he's saying salvation or baptism that saves you is when you do come to God and you appeal to God for a clean conscience. And then when God washes you, when God forgives you, God cleanses you, He baptizes you, and He places you into the body of Christ. And notice he says that this is based on the work of Christ confirmed by resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You get clean conscience not because of the promise you make to God, but you get clean conscience because of the appeal you make to God. What is confession? What is repentance? Repentance is acknowledging that God is right, and I am wrong, and I need His forgiveness. And I come, and just like that guy in Luke 18 says, God, be merciful to me, sinner. And when you are like that, God, be merciful to me, sinner, God says, here you go. And He washes you, and He cleanses you, and He forgives you, and He gives you a new life, and He puts His Spirit in you, and He baptizes you, and He unites you to Christ, and He places you into the body of Christ. That's why Peter could say, hey, that baptism saves you. In that moment, when you appeal to God, when you ask God, when you pled with God for a clean conscience, that's what He did. That's why spirit baptism saves. 
turn to another dry baptism text. Go to Romans chapter 6. Look at Romans chapter 6. Again, there's nothing about water baptism here, but he is talking about baptism. He uses the same terms figuratively. Look at Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And notice verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Again, there is no reference to water baptism here. Notice he says, you were baptized into Christ. You were baptized into His death. You have been identified with Christ. You have identified with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And his argument here in Romans 6 is saying, Hey guys, you can't continue to live the lifestyle that you lived before because now you are a new creature. Because now you've been identified with Christ. Because you have died to your former way of life. And you rose to a new life. How can you continue in sin? You can't. Because you are a different person. Now, water baptism is merely an outward demonstration of what took place on the inside. That's what he's saying. In Romans 6, this is a what God does to you at the moment of your conversion, where He saves you, when He redeems you, where He unites you with Christ, and gives you a new life. That's why this baptism saves. Now what about literal uses of the word baptism in the New Testament? If spirit baptism or baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to inward reality, Water baptism, as I said, is just an outward expression of that reality. You see, when you are baptized with the Spirit, you are united with Christ. You are placed into His body. When you are in the waters of baptism, given your testimony, and then you are baptized, you are given a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ and your identification with the body of Christ. Water baptism outwardly demonstrates what took place inside. If spirit baptism is something that God does, water baptism is something that men do. Because the Great Commission says what? Go therefore and make disciples and then do what? Baptize them. You are supposed to baptize. He's given this instruction to His disciples. He says, as you go and as people get saved... They are supposed to go into the waters of baptism and make a public declaration, give a public testimony of what happened on the inside. Now when they do go into the waters, nothing mystical will happen. It is merely a symbol. Now last time we talked about the Lord's Supper. We have the cup and we have the bread. They are representative of the body and the blood of Christ. They don't turn into the body. The body of Christ isn't some present in some spiritual sense. No. They're just representative. They're they're pointing to greater reality. In the same way, when we're talking about the ordinance of baptism, we are saying that the water baptism is merely a symbol of what took place on the inside. Now, if water baptism is necessary for salvation, which I just said it's not, then Jesus lied to the thief on the cross. Because remember what he said to the thief on the cross? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise today. God didn't have a chance to get baptized. You don't need water baptism for salvation. You are saved by faith alone. Now, if you are saved, you should get baptized, and we'll get to that in a second. But, Baptism, water baptism, is not necessary for salvation. Now think about the greatest missionary in the New Testament, Apostle Paul. His job was to take the gospel and to take it to the unknown world, all the Gentiles. That was his job. He was apostle to the Gentiles. Now, if baptism was necessary for salvation, wouldn't Paul be all over baptism? But listen to what he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. 
not in the cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. What do you mean, Paul? Christ did not send you to baptize, but Christ did send you to convert and to save Gentiles. If baptism was necessary, then Paul would be like, man, we've got to get as many people baptized as possible here. No. But Paul says, my job is to do what? Is to proclaim the gospel. When I proclaim the gospel, God saves people. That's all they need. They just need to hear the gospel and they need to believe the gospel. They don't need to be baptized to be saved. Baptism, water baptism, is not necessary for salvation. Now, while we're going to say again and again that water baptism is not necessary for salvation, we will say with the same force that water baptism is commanded to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Water baptism is the first step of obedience. Again, go therefore and make disciples. What is the first thing to do? Baptize them. Baptize them. Everyone who becomes a disciple, and how do you become a disciple? By believing the gospel. By accepting the word. He says you should baptize every believer. Now, New Testament does not know of unbaptized believers. There is no such thing in New Testament. Everyone who professes, everyone who believes is baptized. To be a, to be a believer and not be baptized is disobedience. So let's put it under this heading. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Answered, those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit must be baptized with water. Simply put this way. If you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, which means you have been saved, then you must be baptized with water. Now this goes back to our definition. This goes back to saying that if water baptism is an outward expression of inward reality, then everyone who has, who has experienced transformation on the inside should testify to that transformation in the waters of baptism. That's just how it goes. If you've been changed on the inside, if you've been made alive on the inside, you should give public testimony of that. Now let me give you a little baptism math here. Here's the first formula to remember. Baptism minus belief equals bath. Baptism minus belief equals bath. What do I mean by that? You see, if one who is not genuinely converted enters the water of baptism, he is merely taking a bath. Because there is no faith. Because there is no genuine repentance. This is not, this is not obedience to the command of Jesus in the Great Commission. In fact, in some way, it is even the mockery of it. Because someone who is unconverted, who gets baptized, he goes in front of the congregation or in front of people, and he lies to them saying that something has happened on the inside when nothing actually happened. So baptism without belief equals bath. And that bath does you no good. Here's the second formula. Belief minus baptism equals disobedience. Now, if you are genuinely converted and you have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're truly saved, but are not willing to publicly testify of that, you are being disobedient to Scripture, because the text commands, you must be baptized. If you're converted, you must be baptized. This is the first step of obedience. That's why you have a third formula. Belief plus baptism equals obedience. Notice it does not equal salvation. Because water baptism is not necessary for salvation. But it equals obedience. Because obedience is implied in salvation. Think about what repentance is. Think about what salvation is. Salvation is you coming to God. You're confessing your sin. You're confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord. Now, if He's your Lord, then He has a right to command you. Right? He has the right to tell you what you ought to do. And the very first thing that He tells you to do is to be baptized. So if He is your Lord, if He is your Master, and you are His slave, and you are willing, and you desire to be obedient to Him, wouldn't the first step will be like, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do? Remember when Paul got converted? What was the, like, God, what would you have me do? When the first answer, the first thing that He says, the first thing you ought to do is you ought to get baptized. Now, if we walk through the book of Acts, we will see that water baptism is reserved for those who believe. It is reserved for those who believe. 
Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the day when the church was born. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching his first sermon. And look at the response to his sermon, beginning in verse 37. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. What comes first? Repentance. Repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We'll come back to the statement a little bit later on. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then, those who have received His word were baptized. Notice the order again. They received His word, which means that they did what? They repented of their sins. And then they were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Repentance is a requirement for baptism. They repented and received the word, and only then were they baptized. The same could be observed with those who got saved in Samaria. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, the church is being spread out because of persecution. Philip goes to Samaria, he preaches there, and look at verse 12. Acts chapter 8 verse 12, it says, But when they believed, Philip's preaching, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, man and woman alike. Notice again, when they believed his preaching, then they were baptized. Belief prior to baptism. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we have conversion of the Gentiles. Cornelius' house, Peter shows up there. He starts preaching. Acts chapter 10 verse 44 says this, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, they got saved, they received the Holy Spirit, and then only after that Peter says, Now we can allow them to be baptized. Go to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we have conversion of Lydia. Acts chapter 16 verse 14 says this, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening. Notice what happened. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household have been baptized, notice again what happened. God opened her heart, she responded, and then after that, she was baptized. Listen, you will find no instance in Scripture where someone was legitimately baptized prior to their conversion, prior to their repentance. It is always in this order. Faith and then baptism. Repentance and then baptism. Now, if we mess up the order, then we obscure the meaning of baptism. What is the point of baptism? Baptism symbolizes something. It symbolizes a reality that takes place on the inside. Baptism symbolizes that the person has died to the former way of life. And now he's alive in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we cannot reverse the order. Now this truth is reflected even in John the Baptist's baptism. You know, John the Baptist came and he was baptized. And this is not a Christian baptism because Christ didn't die yet. Christ didn't institute this ordinance yet. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Listen to this. Some people showed up. And we read this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. John says, uh, Matthew writes this. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even in this baptism, John is saying, Guys, you can't just go through a ceremony. 
You can't just go through a right thinking that something is going to happen to you. Nothing will happen to you unless you first repent. And unless you bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then once you repent, you go and you publicly demonstrate to everyone that we're not better than those Gentiles whom we baptize as Jews. That's what he's saying. Keep, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The same is true of Christian baptism. Repentance comes before baptism. Another question that we must answer is how should one be baptized? Again, New Testament is clear on this. I said already that the word means to immerse, to submerge, or to dip. Now when you read of baptism in the New Testament, you will arrive only at one conclusion. And that is that that person who was baptized was completely submerged underwater. Let me give you a few examples. You don't have to turn there, you can just listen. Here's how John the Baptist was baptizing. It says, And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Notice they're at the river. There's much water there. That's where he's baptizing them. John 3.23 clarifies, and it says, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. You don't need much water to sprinkle somebody. No. Much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. Jordan River, there's much water here. Remember when Jesus was baptized? Mark chapter 1, verse 10 says, Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descend upon him. What was Jesus doing? He was coming up out of the water, which means that he was in the water with John when he was baptized. What about Ethiopian eunuch? Remember Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8, verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now notice here again, I didn't point out this verse earlier. But notice what he says. He says, can I get baptized? And what does Peter say? Well, let's get baptized so you'll be saved. No, notice he says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now, what if you don't believe, then what? Then you may not. Why? Because baptism is only for those who believe. And then he says, if you believe, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's faith. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both, it says, went down into the water. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. You cannot understand it any other way other than immersion, right? That's what he did. Now, not only the evidence of Scripture of how people were baptized, but also the symbolism of baptism requires immersion. What does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes, as I said, or as we read in Romans chapter 6. Listen to this verse again. Romans chapter 6 verse 3. This is a spiritual reality. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Notice he says, In the spiritual reality, you were placed under You were identified with the death of Christ. It's like you were in the tomb with Jesus. And then three days later, you walked out of that tomb. And now you're alive. And now you have new life. Now, what happens when you immerse somebody in the water? You're basically saying the same thing. You have died to your former way of life. And we buried you underwater. And then when you get out, the symbolism, the picture is like, you you were raised again. You were raised to a new life. And the symbolism of immersion, it symbolizes that reality that, yes, you have died, you have been buried, and you have been raised to a new life. You cannot demonstrate that any other way other than immersion. That's why you have to do that. And that's why the symbolism is here. The picture of death, burial, and resurrection is right here in the text. Moreover, baptism symbolizes purification from sin. Remember when Peter, when Paul was converted, and he's given his testimony in Acts chapter 22, and Ananias says to him, get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now again, water baptism does not wash away your sin, right? But water baptism pictures what happens in the, re, in the spiritual realm. 
In the spiritual baptism, your sins are washed away. But in water baptism, it is merely a symbol of what happens in the spiritual life. So let's summarize what we've said so far about this. We've defined baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that God does to you at the moment of your salvation, where He unites you with Christ and places you into the body of Christ. Water baptism is a, an outward display of that reality when one is baptized with water. We ask who should be baptized, and we said that all genuine believers who have experienced conversion must be baptized. And how should they get baptized? They should get baptized by immersion. Now for the rest of our time, I want to defend this position against two prominent views of baptism that are advocated by Roman Catholic Church and by Reformed Pater Baptists. Now, you might say, listen, why would we want to spend time on that? I think we just read a bunch of texts in Scripture. It's pretty clear. Why should we do that? Well, there are many believers who are in the pews uh, that are confused about that. Even professing believers, they're not unclear. And so we need to address them. It's our job to make Scripture clear and to bring the clarity of God's Word to every issue. And second, all of you will interact with Catholics or hopefully will interact with Catholics, or you will interact with people who still reform and baptize babies, right? You'll run into some people who says, listen, I'm saved because I've been baptized as a child, as an infant. I'm saved, I'm in. And you need to know how to answer that. So first, let's look at the Roman Catholic, what Roman Catholic Church teaches about baptism. Now, I mentioned last Sunday that Roman Catholic Church holds to seven sacraments they claim are mystical channels of grace to those who participate in them. And we said that the seven sacraments are baptism, communion, confirmation, confession, anointing, marriage, and ordination. Now Catholics believe that sacraments, they work apart from the faith of the one who participates in them or the one who administers them. Here's a quote from Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. It says, The Catholic Church teaches that the sacraments have an objective efficacy. That is, an efficacy independent of the subjective disposition of the recipient or the minister. The sacrament in itself is holy. It's like, you know, if I have some holy water, and you all are sitting here, I'm going to sprinkle some holy water on you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what state you're in. You're going to benefit from that. Why? Because I sprinkled some holy water on you. I'm just using that as an illustration. And what they're saying here is these sacraments, they're holy in and of themselves. And these sacraments, they dispense grace. And it doesn't matter who dispenses them. And it doesn't matter on whom they're dispensed. That's what they're saying. That's why they're justifying baptism of babies. This is precisely why they think that it is appropriate to administer baptism to infants. Listen to what the church teaches regarding baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of a new law instituted by Jesus Christ, in which, as a result of washing with water, accompanied by the words, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a human being is spiritually regenerated, and made capable of receiving the other sacraments. That's what they teach. That you are regenerated as a result of water baptism. And you are capable of receiving other sacraments. Now, Catholics from this, we can tell that they teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. And in fact, this act of baptism in and of itself causes one to be saved. We call this few baptismal regeneration. Now, this position is held not only by Catholics, but even by some Protestants who would claim that you have to be baptized with water in order to be saved. Now, a good question you're going to ask next is, uh, where is that in the Bible? Now, we're not Catholics. We believe in the Bible. And so some people who claim to hold to the Bible, they find justification for that in the Bible. And so they use a number of verses to justify baptismal regeneration. Let's talk about a few of them. Go to Mark chapter 16, verse 16. This is the first verse that they use. Mark 16, 16. It says here, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. 
Now the first thing that we have to say about this text is that Mark did not write this because we know that the Gospel of Mark ends in verse 8. And that passage from verse 9 all the way to the end was added later. But it's in your Bible. So let's just set, that, set the argument aside just, for, just to make this point. Even if we assume that this text is in the Bible, and this is what Mark wrote, the second part of the verse, it disproves the theory that you need to be baptized to be saved. Because read the second part. But he who has disbelieved shall be saved. Notice what it does not say. But he who has disbelieved or has not been baptized shall be saved. It doesn't say that. In the first part, it does say, He who has believed and is baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall not be saved. Why? Because it is only faith that is required for you to be saved. This scripture does not teach that you need to be baptized with water in order to be saved. But the next verse that is used to justify baptismal regeneration is John chapter 3, verse 5. John 3, verse 5. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now we can simply say here that there is no mention of water baptism anywhere in the context. In fact, when Jesus was having this conversation, there was no such thing as the ordinance of baptism. Because that ordinance was established only after Jesus' death and His resurrection. Now when He's referring here to be washed with water and of the Spirit, it is the Old Testament idea of cleansing. And Nicodemus was the teacher of the law and he definitely understood that. If Jesus wanted to say that you need baptism, He could have simply said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is baptized and is born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But He does not say that. This verse is not talking about water baptism. Next verse is that, that is used is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I read this verse earlier. Go back there. And this is after Peter's first sermon, where Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, the word in question here is this word for in this phrase, for the forgiveness of your sin. Now, if we were to search that word in the New Testament, that word appear over, appears over 1,700 times in the New Testament. It's a preposition. It is translated in various different ways, and the context must determine how it is translated. If we were to translate it, at least three different meanings that fit the context of this word in this verse here. He could be saying that repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in order to receive the forgiveness of your sins. Grammatically you can translate it this way. Or you can say it different. Repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sin. Now notice it changes the meaning completely. Or you can say it this way, Repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ with regard to the forgiveness of your sins. Now, all of these translations are used everywhere else in the New Testament for this word. It is used many different times because it's a preposition. And context must determine the meaning of the word. Now, because we know that this verse cannot contradict everything else the Scripture says, and you always interpret difficult texts in light of the clear text. Right? That's how you do it. You don't pick a verse that is debatable, the verse that is in some way confusing or can be interpreted two different ways, and you pick the hardest interpretation and use that to explain everything else. You don't do that. You take the clear verses and explain difficult verses in light of those clear verses. Now, nowhere does the scripture say that you need to be baptized as we've seen already. You need to believe. Think about the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him and is baptized shall not perish. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What do you have to do to have eternal life? Believe. And notice, it is in the same context of that other, as that other passage in the conversation with Nicodemus. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, maybe Galatians 3.27 teaches baptism regeneration. Go there with me. Galatians 3.27. We looked at this verse already. 
And here's where Paul writes, For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Again, we said that this is a dry verse. There is no water. There is no reference to water here. Because in that whole argument in Galatians, Paul is arguing about justification by faith and faith alone. You don't add anything to that. And that's the whole argument there. And he says you're justified by faith. And spiritually, when you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you've been clothed with Christ. But what about 1 Peter 3.21? Again, we looked at this before, but let's just do it again. 1 Peter 3.21, that phrase that says corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Again, we've concluded that that is not talking about water baptism. Baptism that saves you is your appeal to God for a clear conscience. That is your repentance. That is when you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Therefore, we have to say that there is no biblical basis for baptismal regeneration. There is no biblical basis for that doctrine. That if you go into the waters, you will be born again, you will be saved, or that baptism is required for salvation. Scripture is clear. Tony has been preaching through Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. How were you saved? By grace, through faith. What is required? Faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Can I get baptized? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I do. You should get baptized. That's the formula everywhere. Nowhere nowhere does the New Testament assert or imply that baptism in any way conveys grace to the one who is being baptized, regardless of his faith or lack thereof. In every instance in the New Testament, faith precedes baptism. So if you've been sprinkled as an infant, you haven't been baptized. Because faith precedes baptism. Now what about a Protestant paedo-baptist view? Because Catholics are not the only ones who baptize babies. We know of Reformed churches who are faithfully preaching the gospel, and they still continue to baptize infants. We know of solid Presbyterian preachers who are good, and you should listen to them when they preach about gospel, not when they preach about baptism, but about the gospel. They're good. And they baptize babies. The question is why? Now to understand their position, we need to understand not necessarily their view of baptism, but rather their understanding of covenant theology. Covenant theology is something that you know you should have at least some idea about what that is. And here's a question that you need to think about or answer. And this is what they're debating, though, or what we would be debating when we're talking to covenant theologians. And here's a question. How much continuity and discontinuity is there between the old covenant and the new covenant? How are they similar and how are they different? Now, if you are a covenant theologian, if you're Presbyterian, you believe in covenant theology, you believe that there is a lot more continuity than there is discontinuity, than we would say. So a lot of things from the Old Testament, or pictures, or ideas of the Old Testament, they continue into the New Testament. Now, this is how this relates to the question of baptism. This is how they would argue. In the Old Covenant, or under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, there was a covenant community. Now to be part of that community, a sign that you were part of that community is that you were circumcised on the eighth day, right? Circumcision was a sign in the Old Testament that you belong to the community of God. In the New Testament, there is also a community of God. There is that continuity. There is a covenant community of God. And the sign that you are in the covenant community of God is not circumcision anymore, but it is baptism. They would argue that baptism has replaced circumcision. Now, not everyone who was in the covenant community of God in the Old Testament was saved. And we clearly know that. And therefore we would say that not everyone who is in the covenant community in the New Testament, they would say, is saved either. That's why your kids could be baptized. 
Now, paedobaptists, they do not believe in baptismal regeneration, and they do not claim that when you baptize a child, that child is saved and is, going on, is on, on his way to heaven. They don't teach that. But what they do teach is that that child now is under special grace because he belongs to the community of God, and he receives special benefits because he belongs to the community of God. Now, one of the arguments that they make for baptizing children and infants is the mention of household baptisms in the book of Acts or in the New Testament. There are five household baptisms in the New Testament. The first one we read earlier is Acts chapter 10, is the household of Cornelius. You remember Cornelius got together with his whole family and he's got his friends there and Peter shows up and Peter preaches to them and then he baptizes them all. Right? Second household baptism is the household of Lydia. Listen to this, Acts chapter 16, verse 15 says, When she, Lydia, and her household had been baptized, she urged them, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Third baptism, household baptism, is the household baptism that we read earlier about, the Philippian jailer. In Acts chapter 16, verse 33, it says, And he, Philippian jailer, took them that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Number four is the household of Crispus. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8 says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were being, uh, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So his whole household believed, and they were all baptized. And the final one Paul writes about is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, where he talks about household of Stephanus. He says, Now I did, not, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now those who advocate for this position, they say that when you baptize a household, that definitely means that they were children and that they were infants in those households. And therefore, because they baptized the entire household when the head of the household has believed, then that means that you can baptize children and infants in that household. Now, how would we respond to these arguments? Now, first, we have to say that while there are similarities between circumcision and baptism, they are not identical. Think about the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you were to circumcise all males, by the way, I mean, ladies were excluded. No. All males who belonged to Israel, who belonged to the nation of Israel, were baptized. But we walked through all the texts where baptism was administered. And everywhere we read in the New Testament, baptism was reserved for who? For those who made profession of faith. All the other passages that we looked at so far. Everyone who made a profession of faith was baptized. This is not just something that is given to a covenant community of believers. Notice a baptism, the ordinance, the Christian baptism is given as what? It is given to as part of a great commission. What is a great commission? Make disciples. How do you make disciples? You go and you proclaim Christ to them. They believed and they're baptized. And it is only those who believe are baptized. It's part of great commission. It always is tied to salvation. It is always tied to those who profess to believe in Christ. Second, there is no such thing as a covenant community in the New Testament made up of both believers and unbelievers. This was true in the Old Testament. Definitely. Yet all people were under a covenant blessings of God because by flesh they were children of Abraham. But there was always a remnant. There is no such thing in the New Testament and you will not find there. There is no faithful remnant in the New Testament. What is the point of the new new covenant community? New covenant community is the whole point that everyone who is in that community is a professor, is a believer, is a genuine believer who is converted. Now, it is true that unbelievers infiltrate the church, and they do come into the church, and some fake, fake Christians, they get baptized. But how do they become part of the church? Because they make a public profession. And they says, yeah, I believe. What if you have a pagan who comes in here and says, like, I don't believe any of that stuff, but please give me baptism. Is he going to be baptized? Of course not. He makes a profession. And you, it might happen that later on you find out that somebody who was baptized isn't actually a believer. That's why you have church discipline. That's why you have somebody who 
You say like, we can no longer affirm the testimony of this person, and we're going to do what? We're going to put him out. We're going to take him out because he can't belong to the church. Why? Because the church is made up of who? It is made up of believers, those who are converted. In the new covenant community, it is only those who believe. Bigger is not always better, right? Church is made up of those who profess to believe in Christ, who walk the walk, and those who do not go through the process of church membership and they put out, or church discipline and they're put out. There is no covenant community made up of both believers and unbelievers in the New Testament. Third, household baptism do not justify infant baptism. Now, I read all the verses to you about household baptism. And not one of them mentions children or infants. There isn't one example of that. But they all, except the household of Lydia, they assert that those who were baptized believed and received the word. I read to you the verses. Hey, they believed and then they were baptized. They accepted the word and then they were baptized. At best, household baptisms, they do not confirm either position. Because they have nothing to say about infant baptism. There is no infant baptism or children baptism. And again, depending on how you define a child. In the Bible, you will not find it anywhere. Fourth, paedo-baptist position is inconsistent with the meaning of baptism in the New Testament. It is inconsistent with the definition. Why? Because if you're a Roman Catholic, you believe that baptism causes regeneration. If you're a paedo-baptist, you believe that baptism symbolizes probable future regeneration. Now, is that what New Testament teaches about baptism? That it's probable future? Does that mean that we just, you know, go grab a bunch of people and baptize them because probably, hopefully in the future, they'll be... No! Baptism symbolizes that someone says, I have died on the inside. And I have been raised to a new life. And I want to give a testimony of that in the waters of baptism. That's what baptism means everywhere. So if you baptize infants who do not make profession of faith then that messes up the whole symbolism. It messes up the whole picture. Someone cleverly put it, the problem with infant baptism is twofold. Too little water, too early. That is a great summary. Too little water, too early. They do not make a profession of faith, and therefore you cannot baptize them. And they usually don't dunk them, which is another problem. Now, as we conclude our time this afternoon, I just want to bring all this home. Now that you understand what baptism is, I'm going to ask a few questions here. First question is, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? No, I'm not asking if you speak in tongues. I'm asking simply if you are a born-again believer. You see, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, as we said, is to experience transformation on the inside. When God removes the heart of stone and He gives you the heart of flesh. The question is, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died in your stead? That He died, that He was buried, and that He was raised for your justification? That you don't deserve anything from God but hell and His wrath. And yet in His mercy and in His kindness, He's offering to you the free gift of salvation. Have you accepted that offer? Have you confessed Christ as your Lord? Have you done that? If you have not done that, God commands you today to do that. Because He's still extending time. He's still extending opportunity. And He's saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Go to the Lord. Talk to somebody here before you leave so that you know that you are saved before you leave. Second question, have you been baptized after your conversion? Now, I'm not asking if you've been baptized as an infant or even baptized as an adult unbeliever. Now, I'm asking if you have publicly Declare to everyone in the waters of baptism that transformation has taken place and have you done it after that transformation has taken place? Because if you've done it before, you simply took a bath. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are saved, if you've been transformed, but you have never been baptized, and people are not baptized, as I said, for different reasons. And the question for you is why? 
Why haven't you been baptized? We said that this is the first step of obedience where you publicly declare what God has done for you. You see, in a sense, baptism is not about you. Baptism is about Christ. In baptism, you don't go and proclaim how great I am. No, in baptism, you give a testimony of how great God is and that He saved you. That's what it is. That is a public testimony that, yes, I have repented of my sins. The Lord has changed me. The Lord has transformed me. And I want to give all glory to Him. And I want to publicly identify with Jesus Christ and with His church. Listen, if you haven't been baptized, come talk to one of us. We want you to help you. We want to baptize you and give you an opportunity to publicly confess Jesus Christ. Don't prolong any longer. Now for the rest of us, for those who have believed, for those who have been baptized, we end where we started. What is the Great Commission? Great Commission is go and preach Christ so that people would believe and then you will baptize them. That's the Great Commission. That is a call to all of us. You go. And you proclaim Christ. And you do that at your work. You do that wherever you live. And you do that two weeks from, or a week from this coming up Saturday when we go and we preach the gospel. Because that's what we're commanded to do. That's what we're called to do. And when people will get saved, they will come here. They will hear the truth. They believe we'll baptize them and then we will teach them. And every Sunday and every Wednesday and every Saturday, we come together to do what? Great commission. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is is the Great Commission. That's what we have been called to do. So regardless of where you are, you have something to do. You either need to repent, you need to get baptized, or you need to go preach the gospel so that someone repents and gets baptized. Pretty clear. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for opportunity that you give to us to publicly proclaim Christ. Pray for every heart here that people would be converted that people would be passionate about your truth, and that they would go forth and proclaim the gospel to others so that they may be saved as well. In Jesus' name, amen.